Hey there, welcome to episode 39 of No Guitar Is Safe. My name is Jude Gold, and gosh, I'm kind of repeating myself every time I start off this show because I say the same thing, but it's always true. Here it goes, I'm going to say it. Today on the show, I have an absolutely amazing guitar player for you. It's true. Today's guest won a Grammy for that. That's a Paul McCartney in the Wings song called Rockestra Theme. Wait till you hear who's on that track with today's guest. Our guest is the amazing Lawrence Juber, who also won a Grammy for one of his solo pieces. He was involved in that album and walked away with a trophy, which I saw at his house sitting there, one of his Grammys. You know, when you have a bunch of Grammys, it's, it's, it's hard to keep track of them all, but I, I saw that thing lying around. Good paperweight to have. And Mr. Juber also got to play, and this amazes me too, just as much as those first two things. He got to play the coolest, I think you'll agree, probably the coolest guitar lick in the history of Hollywood. Or at least the history of action films. Yeah, that was from a James Bond movie, The Spy Who Loved Me. I think I had that poster when I was a kid. How cool is that? And I'm also thrilled that we have some wonderful holiday music to complement the season that is upon us because Lawrence has this really wonderful solo album out, just came out, called Holidays and Holly Nights. Delivery is so pristine. He's the real deal. I just love that sound so much. Let's hear another one from Holidays and Holly Nights, Lawrence Juber. Man, I'm ready to get this thing started. Let's start up the show. But, you know, real quickly, I want to remind you, the uh, Guitar Player Magazine subscription special, an entire year, 12 issues, or a 12-issue extension to your current subscription for only $5 continues. Just head to guitarplayer.com slash N-G-I-S, as in no guitar safe. It's guitarplayer.com slash N-G-I-S. I know many of you have subscribed and taken advantage of the offer. Thank you so much. I hope you're digging the Owen Berry videos from last week. I've been posting stuff here and there, Twitter, at Jude underscore gold, or on the Facebook page for No Guitar Is Safe. Shout out to Aaron Cook, Lawrence Juber's wonderful publicist, who's worked with me on other stuff over the years. 
and also Zoom for the recorder. I'm saying all this stuff now because we're going to go long and we're going to go deep on this episode of Pure Wonderfulness with a truly amazing guitarist. I mean, this guy played with three of the four Beatles. Come on now. And so that means that, you know, I'm not even going to try to tack on an outro at the end because this is almost two hours, but I promise you're going to like it. Swear to God. Also, if you're in New Jersey this week, I'll be playing at the State Theater with Jefferson Starship on a double bill with Blue Oyster Cult on Thursday night, December 8th, uh, New Brunswick. So yeah, let's uh, fire up the copter and head over to Lawrence Juber's wonderful Los Angeles studio, which I, I just love it in there, man. It's just such a great vibe, and, and nothing improves the vibe like some great gear and great guitars, and he has tons of both, including his incredible Martin Lawrence Juber signature model, which I got to play one too, so we're both playing them. Although most of the episode, I let him do most of the playing because he's such a virtuoso. But we do start off with an opening blues jam. We're both playing the Martin LJ signature models. Hope you enjoy it. And remember what Joe Satriani challenged us all to do in the first episode of this podcast a year and a half ago. Keep it alive till you're 95.
I have this guitar? <laughs> It'll cost you. <laughs> this is so wait these these guitars man I was telling you before we started recording that you can just tell it's a great instrument before you even pick it up can you uh, tell us what are we playing here we it looks like they're twins <laughs> they are well they're kind of like brother and sister um, these uh, that's an om 18 orchestra model 18 um, mahogany with a moon spruce top high alpine Swiss spruce cut on the waning moon. Uh, this one is an OM-21. It's essentially the same guitar, but with a Guatemalan rosewood body, um, both from the Martin Custom Shop and, and various like incarnations of my signature model. Um, the moon spruce is an interesting thing because when they cut the tree, when the sap is at its lowest, you just get a drier log. And the theory is that it's about 15 years worth of aging. Wow. So roughly comparable, kind of the natural equivalent of what a lot of makers have been doing recently with torrification, where they, they torrify the wood, they, they heat it to suck the moisture out, which then artificially ages it. Because it's all about dryness. I mean, that's the thing about old guitars. Um, I, I may very well pull out, I have an 1893 Martin 121. That's, that's a real old guitar. Was that the first Martin? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> the first Martin. Well, it's, I mean, they, you know, they started in 1833, so, I knew you that. know, 60 years down the line. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's like an yeah. adolescent, it's like a 12, you know, 13-year junior high school Martin. Kind of, yeah, yeah. That's interesting what you're saying, though, because I think that's something that I sense when I pick up really fine guitars is that they're a lot lighter. They're super solid, but they maybe it's because there's less moisture. In yeah, I think the weight has a lot to do with it. I mean, it's like vintage Les Pauls. You know, you play a, a 50s Les Paul, and it's just lighter than a, you know, than a solid modern one. Of course, they get into, you know, chambering and, and stuff to reduce the weight. But just old wood, you know, old air-dried wood, that's yeah. that's the thing, um, and also I mean with with the Martins they they you know especially the mahogany ones they are very light I mean they're like potato chips you know there's just there's a yeah I, I you want the whole guitar to be working you know to, all the ingredients to be working together and these are hide glue too so that's kind of old school most modern guitars are made with acrylic glue like you know. Um, type bond um the martin went over to acrylic glue uh, about 1963 so anything earlier than that is more likely than not is hide glue and hide glue sets like glass so it really transmits the vibrations acrylic glue sets more like a gasket which makes it for a very warrantyable guitar that that you know interesting yeah from a like a a repair point of view uh, although hide glue, you heat it and, you know, you, you undo the joint. So a neck reset on a hide glue neck is pretty straightforward. I mean, you just got to heat it until the glue releases. Yeah. This is the real story. I'm digging it. The yeah. real story I've been, You know, I've been kind of getting deep into guitar lore. Now, I, I really like the cutaway here that you have on your model. It's a, not too extreme. You can reach the high frets with your fretting hand, but it's not yeah, like it's, a... Yeah, it's, it's the kind of a graceful cutaway. I think that, um, not sure that, that Martin will, will admit it, but I think that you know, if you compare this style of cutaway with what Eric Schoenberg was doing with the Schoenberg guitars, that that, that was the, 
kind of the, the inspiration for it. You know, it's a soft cutaway as opposed to the, you know, the, what is it, the Venetian. The and whenever I meet a really great finger stylist such as yourself, although we have met before a couple times, um, I always ask them before I would dare to play it with a pick <laughs> which I did, and you explained to me that, A, that's okay with you, which is cool. Yeah, I know no, you, play, you do everything. But I also noticed you don't even have, even not even one of those thin little acrylic pick guards on no. this model. There's nothing on this top. No, it's like I, a like it, I like it plain. There's, you know, signature guitar with no signature on it. <laughs> nice. And, and you, no pick guard, because I just don't want anything inhibiting the sound. I mean, it's always been, you know, for me, kind of this pursuit of the maximum kind of tonality and and sonic you know the resonance of it whatever i can get now i mean some people would argue that putting a cutaway on reduces that but th there's a compromise there because i need the access yeah you play definitely you play the whole yeah i mean neck. i can be you know i can be way up way up there but these guitars intonate so well and uh i noticed the strings are very nickel in color well these are th these are my signature strings in the Martin Retro series, they're Monel, which is a nickel copper iron alloy, which is actually truly retro. I mean, that's what they used in the 20s and 30s before phosphor bronze came in. I think part of the, the issue was that uh, right around World War II, that nickel became um, kind of controlled because they needed it for, uh, for the war effort. And um, it's like, you know, you see... You see guitars where, where the tuners have bolts instead of screws to yeah. to hold the gears on because the screws were again it was like they needed them for you know armaments or tanks and stuff. Right. But uh, the thing I like about Monel is that you have a very strong fundamental. That it's a strong note and and without the kind of the the more of that kind of fizzy high harmonic stuff that you get off the phosphor bronze. Off, off from brass. Um, I'll take your word for it. And and it just seems it just suits my style. I didn't like it at first. I mean, uh, when I first started playing with them, because I did have a, a signature string with GHS, and a phosphor bronze string that was cryogenically treated, and you know, it's a really good string in that that kind of area. But once I started really getting into Monell and realized that it was there was a certain clarity that really worked and it for me it just kind of helps differentiate the the parts you know if i'm playing a melody and bass at the same time that somehow they they exist a little bit more in their own space well it reminds me of, of a joke what did the acoustic guitar player say to the rock electric guitar player why are you shouting <laughs> like i'm in here at this very soundproof studio at your lovely home and uh, uh -huh. And I'm just always struck by how quiet these fine instruments are, but with that comes that balance. Like, Yeah, actually, I mean, I'm sound absorbent more than soundproof right, here. Right. So we still get the Burbank airplanes coming over. So right, it's that, like, well, that's wait, what I meant. you know, take two, hang on a second. <laughs> um, but, yeah. but yeah, I, I mean, this is a very dead room. What's amazing about old or quasi-old guitars, I mean, guitars that are on this level, is that... There's just a lot of internal sound. There's a lot of internal reverb, almost, um, where the uh, there's a certain ambience in it that you don't always get with with modern guitars. I, I, that's the thing I'm always looking for is is kind of how it's going to speak. 
and what the sustain is like and what's going on with the sustain. And when you start getting all those kind of extra harmonics ringing, you know, from the other strings and... And how it takes vibrato. That's wonderful. I should pull out the... Uh, let me pull out the parlor guitar. Awesome. That, that's a bit of a revelation sonically, too. Old 1892? 1893. 93. Yeah. Now, feel the that. weight of that. Oh, it weighs like nothing. Nothing, yeah. There's nothing to it. And that's Brazilian rosewood. So it's not like mahogany, which is like super light. Um, it's just a very light guitar. To me, that just sounds perfect. Now, this has... Um, this has regular phosphor bronze on it, um, mostly because I don't have a set of the Monels that are light enough to not pull the bridge off. Because <laughs> you know, these were originally made for gut. Right, the open tuners. Like yeah, classical they're, they're, you know, guitar classical style. Classical style tuners. So yeah, you don't want a huge amount of tension. Well, that I'm not... It's not really the tension there. It's it's whether or not the the bridge is going to stay stay right, put. Yeah. And the tops on these are very thin. sounding guitar i've Sounds actually been perfect. using it quite a bit on um on sessions because it just has a different sound to the more modern ones yeah it looks like a uh, old west or something yeah it's um it's very cool now how does one come across an 1893 martin in perfect actually that's an eric schoenberg score too. Um, you know, Eric has a s store in Tiburon, Schoenberg Guitars, and he specializes in vintage instruments. So I was doing a concert there, and it's a tiny room. I mean, you can get like 30 people in there for a concert, but this was hanging on the wall. And I went to play an encore, and I just grabbed it because it looked cool and, you know, started playing and uh, decided I would buy it. <laughs> Very cool. <laughs> yeah. Well, you certainly have done a lot of amazing sessions over the years. I know that was one of your early goals, I guess. But what made you first want to pick up a guitar? Like, what started this madness? <laughs> well, I think it really started with the shadows. You know, when, um, I guess, Apache, which was, 19, I think, 1959. <laughs> 
on the ventures had yeah. a hit with it here but the right. shadows did it in england um and that kind of got me sucked into the idea of guitar and hank marvin who was the lead guitarist you know played a stratocaster yeah isn't that funny like, like buddy holly and the original surf guitarist is from england Well, you know, Cliff Richard, they were Cliff yeah. Richard's backing group. And Cliff has never been successful, really, in America, but it was huge in England and, and much of the rest of the world. And Cliff had actually brought a Strat back to England because he couldn't get American guitars in England in the 50s. There was actually an embargo. There was an import restriction uh, post-World War II. And Cliff was brought the first Stratocaster back to England which Hank then proceeded to play. And that was just such a cool look. But that kind of sucked me into the sound of the guitar. And then, you know, you have like Dr. No with the James Bond thing. Didn't you play that? Like you I did it on the Spy Who Loved Me. You yeah. ultimately got to. I, I got guess to do it. Yeah. <laughs> do different yeah. versions. But but the thing that really the real real thing was like 1963. You know there was a steady kind of progression of Beatlemania, and I'd really wanted to play the guitar. And my dad wanted me to play the saxophone. So I said, okay, I'll learn clarinet in school, and made sure my name was at the bottom of the list. So it was like, sorry, Dad, they they ran out of clarinets before they got to me, and. When the Beatles did the Royal Command performance in early November 63, well, that was the show where John Lennon made the crack about, um, you know, clap your hands and, you know, those and you know, rattle right. your jewelry. <laughs> um, that kind of gave the guitar a certain kind of legitimacy because the Beatles all of a sudden were like huge and they played guitars and it wasn't just hooligan stuff. And for my 11th birthday, I got a guitar. Fantastic. In November 63 and I just never put it down. That's great. Yeah. Let's play a little Beatles right now. Hey, you have someone you have you're working on you said that your third Beatles record is coming yeah. out of you playing Beatles arrangements and uh the first two have been Let me play let me play you uh This one is just going to be called Lawrence Juber can't stop playing the Beatles or something. Yeah. <laughs> LJ can't stop playing the Beatles. Instead of number 3, yeah. I don't think you ever could stop playing the Beatles. Who could? Well, you know, I start when I started, when I started doing this, it was, I was ex almost exclusively composing, and I've written, you know, over 150 tunes for solo guitar. But audiences like the familiar, and I certainly discovered, you know, when iTunes came along, that the stuff most of the time, although recently I've seen a little shift in it, but most of the time, the stuff that people buy is familiar tunes because they're looking for song titles that they know not so much driven by the artist side of things. Good point. So, you know, between kind of keeping the audience happy and also just exploring, and not just Beatles. I mean, I did an album of Harold Arlen tunes. I've got the world on six strings. Um, I've done nice. other cover tunes and published other cover tunes because there's I, I learned so much from the arranging process, from taking somebody else's tune and figuring out how to squeeze it onto the guitar. But anyway, let, let me do a little bit of She Loves You. Mm -hmm. 
that last chord. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's great. You are a fine, fine yeah, guitar George player. Monson, George Monson tried to talk him out of it. Because the was, last chord? Yeah, because, you know, the it's, jazz uh, chord. It's, it's kind of an old-fashioned thing to... It's kind know. of a jazz hands chord. Yeah. To end on the six. Well, you know, the, the whole song, I mean, if you, look, if you kind of break it down, that which direction is it coming from musically? You know, because there's like the... Um, I mean, it's all very pop. Well, that's what Whereas I love. That's I, a bluesy lick. You I know? love that about the Beatles. They always had a little blues, little R&B in there. Yeah. Well, the R&B is kind of John and you know Smokey Robinson and you know Arthur Alexander and all of that. And George really is bringing kind of the guitar consciousness to it. You know, whether it's those kind of licks or or the Chet Atkins kind of picking that he throws throws in there and stuff like that. Well, um, but that particular tune, it's like. It's it's a combination of kind of Timpan Alley of different eras. You know, it's like going, going to the minor yeah. four chord. Um, and in fact, the, you know, the C minor six. And then it's really a D augmented. You know, the, these are yeah. kind of... These are old school chords. Yeah. You know, it's not like simple pop music chords. There's, there's all those little kind of inner voicings that and I think George has a lot to do with that. Oh, I love that. You yeah. know, I was talking to Elliot Easton from The Cars. Sure, I know Elliot, yeah. I figured, you, yeah, you probably do. I was, yeah. I was like, you know, I always love that one chord on. I don't mind you coming here and wasting all my time. And he's like, oh, well, we just borrowed that from the Beatles. Want to hold your hand? Yeah. Yeah, you got that something. Mm-hmm. Think you'll mm-hmm. understand. Yeah. It's like they took the same. There was always a cool chord in it. At least one cool, uns- cool, unsuspecting, like surprising chord in every yeah, Beatles song. Yeah, you know, it's hard to to fake your way through Beatles songs. You kind of got to know where the moves are. Otherwise, you kind of get tripped up because it isn't always like the predictable cycle of fifths move or the you know the flat seven kind of move there's right. this little twists to it so you must have it must have been i mean if you were your little self in 63 mm-hmm. knowing that it would have driven you insane if you knew that you were ultimately going to play with paul mccartney <laughs> and ringo star and love, george harrison too and george harrison yeah. how did you get there i mean what did you do in high school did you study music did you go, i know you studied music in college like yeah no i studied music in high school because i wanted to be a musician i mean my ambition as soon as i realized i could make money doing it there was a local band leader when i was 13 the, this band leader said oh come and play some gigs with me and so i went and did like some weddings and corporate things and i remember the very first gig the bass player leaned over and he said lad if you don't know the chords just play the bridge of i got rhythm just play rhythm changes you know um and you know so i learned a lot on the bandstand but i wanted to study music theory and in order to do that i had to have classical guitar lessons and as luck would have it they got a classical guitar teacher at my high school and I started taking classical lessons. And I, I was always interested in fingerstyle acoustic because parallel with the whole Beatle thing, we also had, I mean, 1963 was Bob Dylan, Joan Baez, and then a little later we had Donovan and, you know, the whole folk picking thing. And I got really into Bert Jansch and John Remborn and Pentangle and the, the English folk Baroque. You and Jimmy Page. Yeah. 
were into that stuff. Well, because it was in the air. It was part of that scene, you know. And, you know, Al Stewart actually had was, was somewhat instrumental in that because um, he ha- had worked out Blackwater's side in Dagad and showed it to Jimmy Page. But actually, Bert Yanch did it in Drop D. But Al mistakenly did it in Dagad. And, and Jimmy Page was playing lead guitar on an album with, with Al, and Al kind of showed him how he did that particular thing. Of course, Paige had already been, had the White Summer thing and, you know, she moved through the fair and all of that, you know, the Davy Graham influence. I was less influenced by Davy Graham because I was a little young to really kind of get the full impact of what he was doing. It was more Bert Yance, John Rambo. So Angie, I learned from the Bert Yance recording of it. And then from the Paul Simon recording of it, it wasn't until some years later that I actually sat on a couch with Davy Graham and had him show me how he did it, with the thumb playing the low F. I'd been doing it more classical style, you know, trying to get that, I think get that low F with the bar chord. You know. That's cool. Yeah, so that was kind of a kind of an initiation for me into the idea that you could play multiple parts at once in fingerstyle. And of course, playing classical guitar. I played that 10 million times, but now I'm not sure if I remember the entire thing. But Yeah, now I, now I, I remember it because it's part of my practice routine. Yeah, yeah, I would, I would just trip out on that, and I noticed how the bass line was so cool. Yeah, exactly. Like, there's really two distinct parts. I noticed yeah. that Bach hit every single note in of the 12 notes that we use in Western. Well, thing. especially because it's it's melodic minor. Yeah. And the reality is that the melodic minor is essentially a, cla- a, a, a chromatic scale. Because if you start adding in some of the bluesier notes yeah, too, yeah. you know, then you, you've got, and make stepwise motion, then you're pretty much, I mean, there's your basic melo- yeah. melodic minor, but if you add, let's say, you know, you add a little bit of that, you know, if you're doing a 2-5-1 yeah. in, in, you know, in the dominant, so you're, you're going from E to to F sharp to B, you know, yeah. you're, you're going to get that A sharp in there. Yeah, um, yeah, it's everything. And you know, I got one for you too. I took that, I remember I started messing around with that in 6-8. Sure. Yeah, that, that'll that drive you nuts. Yeah. It's, it's kind of cool. It bounces around. Oh, now you're doing like the ragtime. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, but you know, there's been a lot of, I mean, I, I remember, was it? I forget which guitarist it was. Bakerloo Blues Line was the band. Um, there was Driving Bachwoods, which was an electric version of that. And of course, you know, Jethro Tull did it with, you know, the flute too. Um, but the thing about, the really interesting thing about that is that Chet Atkins recorded it on, on electric guitar in 1957. And George Harrison owned that album. And he and Paul learned it 
the London Beret, and Paul admits that that's where he got the idea for Blackbird. You know, because Blackbird... You've got those moving tents. Well, you look yeah. at the, you know, especially the... Um, Play a little bit of Blackbird if you like so. Now, but you look at the second half of the beret. That, that all these moves... Um, You know, all of that, it's just, it's, it's just flows from one to the next because what Paul was doing was playing with tenths. Yeah. Which is what Bach, you know, builds a lot of those movements around. Thirds plus an octave. Yeah, yeah. third plus an octave. Um, you know, so I think, I mean, I think very much intervallically and I, and I think harmonically too. It's interesting, I just came across, I started reading um, Fernando Saw. You know, who's like one of the, you know, yeah. Well, you know, Saw's method, he talks about the fact that he wants to be recognized as a harmonist, not, not necessarily for his melodic execution. You know, you look at Saw's music, and it's not very much of the kind of hit the bass note and then do a wild run, which you, you yeah. get a lot of, uh, you get a lot of that in some of the, you know, Giuliani, for example. Um, there's a more more tangible virtuosity that the saw really is much more harmonically based. And well, the only one I ever knew was uh, Encouragement. Mm -hmm. That was, seems pretty melodic based. Yeah, no, that's melodic based. But you look at, you know, the studies are very harmonic. And, and his yeah. method, he talks about harmony. And he just launches almost immediately into harmony. Saw was a very well-rounded composer. He didn't just do guitar music. He wrote an opera, he wrote a ballet, which was very successful. He wrote, uh, there was a song form called the Segedias, which was a precursor of the bolero, where the lyric is kind of like a haiku. It's like a very set, specific number of syllables. And um, what um, Saw was like a, a master of this form. Interesting. And you, but it was never published. If you wanted the music, you had to go to a special shop and they would hand copy it for you. Wow, you'd be a high roller. Get that sheet music. If only they had PDFs back then. Yeah. Well, now there's PDFs of, of so much stuff. I mean, I've been I've got binders full of stuff that I've downloaded from different databases. Um, awesome. All the I'm just looking here. The Johann Caspar Mertz, who was one of the great mid mid 19th century guitarists. But one of my f more interesting finds was was learning about Legnani, um, who was the Paganini of the guitar. He was a, a kind of contemporary of Paganini's. And you know how you know, people play the Paganini, the 24th Caprice. You know, they, um, that one. You know, it's, it's a violin tune that you know, shredders use. Well, Legnani was writing stuff like that for guitar. <coughs> Here's a little bit. Um, Yeah, that's one of his caprice. And that's slow. 
It should be, it's actually marked prestissimo, which is basically as fast as possible. And of course, you know, they were playing shorter scale guitars. In fact, the Legnani signature model is the Stauffer that is kind of the iconic early Martin guitar with the, with the Fender style headstock where all the tuners are on one side. Um, with a floating right. fingerboard and and yeah, it's really interesting when you start looking at the the level of virtuosity of the players of that era and yeah. how little they appear in the music history books. And when is too. that? That's early no early nineteenth century. I mean, going yeah. back, you know, the really the the first generation of kind of international touring finger style guitar players was the first half of the nineteenth century, and it was. Fernando saw, and it was Giuliani especially, because Giuliani toured a lot, um, and also played the Terz guitar a lot, you know, the tuned a third higher, so minor third higher, so shorter scale again. Um, Legnani, uh, Zanni Di Ferranti, of whom um, Berlioz said, he rocks you. He so the first you. rock guitarist, Zanni Di Ferranti. The first use of the word rock. He rocks Possibly. you. Yeah. Awesome. Um, and then Johann Caspar Mertz, who kind of like what Schumann was to the piano in terms of this almost pre-impressionistic kind of very uh, visual kind of tone poem type compositions, Mertz was on guitar. And a lot of these players didn't get, don't get recognized in the Segovia paradigm because they're not Spanish or South American. Um, you know, they're more Central European or Italian um, and he, I mean, Saw was, was a Spaniard, and, but, but I don't think that Segovia was aware of much of Saw's output. And even Giuliani, an Italian, doesn't get a lot of play in the classical canon. I, and so I don't look at these players as classical guitar players. They were the fingerstyle guitar players of their particular era. Very cool. Yeah. I mean, there are very few guitar players like you, like who are world-class fingerstylist, but then also sitting... Five feet from us is a 68 Marshall Plexi head. <laughs> there's, there's, a, a there's a 57 Les Paul Gold Top right behind you. That's yeah, right. I'm looking at a Fender basement. Where's that from? That's a 64 yeah. basement. That's a, that's the, a the secret weapon Beatle amp is a, is a 64 basement. There's one of those on every Beatle album from Rubber Soul onwards. Yeah, so. You can see it in the pictures. Paul used it on bass and on guitar. John used it on guitar on Sgt. Pepper. George used it on Abbey Road, too. Amazing. Um, I mean, I, I was so busy setting up the mics. I'm just looking around. You got that awesome full tone tube tape echo, which yeah. everybody wants. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a first generation one too. Sweet dual showman. Cool soldering iron, probably. Yeah, there's a soldering iron. There's <laughs> a couple great. of soldering irons over there. Although I'm not very good with that stuff, but I, I can get by in a pinch. But you know, the reality is, I mean, you know, I started off as a session player. I mean, that was always my ambition. So you know, I, as a teenager. The reason I wanted to study music was so that I could, you know, be a better sight reader, understand harmony, and understand music theory. And after I left high school, I actually took what what they now call a gap year, where I worked professionally around London. I had a, a place in uh, at Leeds College of Music, which was the closest thing we had to the Berklee School of Music. But I realized that taking myself out of London after I'd paid all these dues as a teenager. So you finish high school and you're, you're in your gap year where you're like yes. 18 or 17. Yeah, I'm 18 and I'm playing gigs around London and doing jazz gigs and folk clubs and demo sessions and corporate gigs and you know, making a living. And then I went to London University and studied music and musicology there. I didn't study Instead guitar Instead of going in to college. Leeds. Yeah, I, didn't, I decided well, I didn't want to leave town. 
Um, so I went to college. You're still working even while I was in college. I mean, I'd go and do like Jesus Christ Superstar for a week, you know, subbing for one of the guitar players and uh, getting, starting to get some demo sessions and things and playing with the National Youth Jazz Orchestra, which was great, you know, for sight reading practice. And you see the movie Whiplash? Yeah. Yeah, well, our rehearsals were not unlike Whiplash. Um, <laughs> right. In fact, Miles, the guy that played the drums in the movie, actually lives like two two houses down from me. He just moved in. So instructors um, would throw things at you sometimes. Oh yeah, I mean, you know, you would get drumsticks thrown at you, or you know. But I, I, actually, it was more the sax section. You know, we, I was the guitar was okay. Um, <laughs> but uh, that was kind of like a farm team for studio work. So I. Uh, we did a BBC uh, concert broadcast, and the next day I got a call from a man named David Katz, who was one of the, the big-time contractors. Well, in England, they call fixers. They were book musicians for session work. And he got me started, and uh, within a very short period, I was working like seven days a week, doing three, four sessions a day. You know, that was kind of the culmination of my ambition to be a studio player, and then I joined Wings, which kind of completely t pulled me out of that. Now, when world. you're doing this, I always, I've talked to several people who are in that era who are, you know, from the Steve Lukather's to the Nile Rodgers, mm -hmm. just bouncing around. And, you know, there's no cell phones. They usually had an answering service or right. something. Is it stressful doing that? I Man, I'm like, if I if I got one or two sessions a day, that would that would be more than enough. What's yeah, it like it was, running around? <laughs> it was a lot of work. I mean, you know, I'd I'd go and I lived out. On the outskirts of London, so I you know, typically had like 45 minutes to an hour drive to get in. So I was always happy when I had an 8 a.m. jingle because I could actually leave the house early enough to beat the traffic. But you do a jingle from 8 until 9 and then a record date from 10 until 1 and then another one from 2 until 5 and then I maybe go to the BBC and do a, you know, a, like a, a broadcast uh, pre-record with, I don't know, um, Johnny Mathis or the Three Degrees or something, you know, playing, wow. you know, playing with a, a full band and strings and everything else. Are you just a hundred percent sight reading on something like that? I mean, or do uh, you have the music pretty in much. advance? I mean, you know, those kind of sessions tend to be very, you know, very notes driven. But you know, the I mean, plenty of sessions were make up parts. I mean, that was really right. when I realized, oh, I know how to make up, you know, how to invent little hooky parts and it w wasn't until way later once I started working with Paul and I saw the compositional process that I realized that that was just kind of mini composition you know now if you're a session you know if you're in, in a session chances are if you're coming up with parts you're also getting credited as a writer I was wondering if that was really happening now now it is yeah and I know that because my daughter Ilse is a professional songwriter and she is you know, if if people are in the room and they're creating tracks, and of course, because so much of it is laptop driven, that you never actually like go into the studio and cut the track. You write to the yeah. beat or you write to the groove, and and so there, you know, you you program the kick drum and you get writing credit. <laughs> that's amazing. Well, that's good to hear. That's some positive yeah. news about. Well, yeah, but I think <laughs> that the downside of that is that the old school way of, you know, the contract going through the union and you getting your union payment and your pension and your health and welfare and special payments and, you know, all the, the other back end stuff, um, that's kind of gone away. But once I got into studio work, I thought, you know, this is, this is what I'm doing. And then I worked with Denny Lane on a TV show with David Essex where I was playing in, in the house band. And, Denny liked my playing and recommended me to Paul. That's crazy. So tell me, just take me from that moment. How did you feel when you first heard 
did Paul ask him for a recommendation? And how did you feel when you first heard the name Paul McCartney, you being the huge Beatles fan that you were, come well, your direction? See, I was a huge Beatles fan you know, early on, but I was also a Stones fan and an Animals fan and a Beach Boys fan. I mean, I was a music fan. Right. The Beatles were kind of like just open the door. Um, but come on, they are... Yeah, uh, well, yeah, and but but more iconic in America than they ever than they were in England. I mean, Beatlemania kind of wore off relatively fast in in England, whereas it was really building in America. I was shocked when I first started going to New York, you know, as a wing and discovering just how popular the Beatles were in America. Holy shit! Yeah, tell tell us this Paul McCartney story. And let's listen for a second to a Rockestra theme because you ended up getting a Grammy for that with the band, right? Yeah, we got a Grammy for it, yeah. Well, I, I mean, basically what happened was, you know, played Go Now with Denny on this TV show and they had written a guitar solo for me to play and I played the solo and Denny and I kind of bonded. And what kind of rig were you using on that? Then I think I was probably, I had a deluxe reverb that was stolen and I replaced it with a music man. That was kind of the like that particular period, like 77-ish, music man was kind of becoming quite a big deal yeah. and um so i was using that and i had a again i had a whole bunch of gear stolen in 1976 so my main thing was a les paul deluxe and a 63 strap but both of those you know went away on the back of somebody's truck um and I, I had a guild f50 acoustic which was a spectacular sounding guitar so eventually what i ended up with was a, a d28 um for acoustic and for electric, I had a Les Paul Custom, I had a 63 Strat, which I think at the time I had Mighty Might pickups on. Those were kind of the main thing. So wait, um, you played the solo. What, did you have like a fuzz tone or? Yeah, I think I was using an electric, probably either an electric, no, uh, a, a, a Big Muff, or I had, you know, what the, the little distortion, the MXR, I had a whole bunch of MXR pedals, you know, so... Um, it was kind of like the, I just had a little briefcase with you know pedals in. So it was the the, the MXR distortion, the Phase ninety, the um, cool. their chorus pedal, the flanger rather their flanger pedal, and an electric mistress also. And what was it about this solo? I, I just, you just I just played, it? I, I nailed it, and Danny liked what I, liked the tone and and liked my phrasing. I think, um, and you know, sometime later, I mean, this was many months later, Paul said to Denny, do you know any good guitarists? And Denny said, yes, I do, and recommended me. I, so I knew the Wings were looking for a guitarist, but I wasn't pursuing the gig because I was busy being a session player. And I'd actually run into them at Air Studios. It was Paul Linder and Denny were working on something in the same studio that I had a session later that evening. And I was early, and they invited me in because they were running late. And um, so I kind of bonded a little bit with them and and I, as I we, they were leaving I said to Danny you know if you ever need a guitar player let me know you know but I was just kind of kidding you know, you know just 
kind of professionally kidding but so i never <laughs> expected to actually get right. a phone call to come and audition and i didn't know any wings tunes i mean you know if, I, I would have been better off you know if they if they wanted me to play like you know chick career or, you oh, know, yeah, yeah. or, or uh, weather report or something like that because that's really what i was into or larry carton i was a big larry carton fan at that point larry carton and um lee rittenar and you know because there was something iconic about the la session players you know that was something to aspire to and i was a big crusaders fan yeah so. you had the la rig going there the deluxe and the mxrs and yeah, I guess so. Yeah, um, well, the Deluxe has always been right. know, a great studio amp. Um, actually, I have a Princeton two over here that was a very early one when Paul Rivera kind of when he was doing all the mods to the Deluxes, and then he just yeah. took those mods and built them into the uh, the Princetons and yeah. the Deluxes at that time. And like Steve Lukather was using those, like Deluxe, like on Hold the Line, huge guitar sounds, just a Rivera modded Deluxe. Yeah. Which I blew my mind. Yeah, that was around a, the same, a, around yeah, same time. Yeah, with a 59 burst, too. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> So what happens? Does Paul's manager call you up or something? Yeah, or? I got a phone call. I was actually at Abbey Road, working at Abbey Road in Studio 2 when I got the call. Is that the Beatles room? That's the Beatles room. I was fortunate yeah. enough to go there a couple of years ago and yeah. go up to the Lady Madonna piano and play yeah. the... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. On the, it's like, whoa! Yeah. That's an amazing feeling to be in that room. So yeah, and we and, worked there a lot. Yeah. Know? So I went and did the audition not knowing any Wings tunes, and luckily we we jammed on some Chuck Berry tunes and played some reggae grooves, and then they asked me, what are you doing for the next few years? And at that point, I had to make a decision. So I had thought about it for a, a, a long nanosecond, and I knew that I couldn't turn down working with Paul McCartney, but I, was give, I knew I'd be giving up the studio work That's to do they, that. That's what all the... They all say, if you know, you got to stay in it to stay in it. Yeah, I mean, once you, you know, you turn down one session and sometimes you've lost that whole client thing. The whole know. network. Or the, yeah. yeah. So, what was Paul like when you met him and were hanging out with him? He was him? cool. I mean, it was, you know, it was pretty, pretty regular. He seems like he might be pretty, like, all business when recording. Well, I mean, he, he, it's all business as far as, you know, you get the job done and, you know, he has a great work ethic. It was it was a great experience for me. It was a great education for me to really be doing that. I love, you know, that it's tragic how the song Getting Closer fades out because that ending section is so beautiful. It feels like you guys jammed on it for another 10 minutes. Actually, I did a whole bunch of guitar solos on the ending, and, and Paul insisted that he wanted that melody. And um. live, I was using a, I had a Roland um, guitar, um, a pitch to voltage converter in a rack, so I would kick in like a low octave on that with a synth kind of sound. And I forget, I was, uh, when we were doing Back to the Egg, I was using a, an ARP avatar. I had a strat with a, you know, with a, a pickup on it and running into an ARP avatar. And I used that on a f in a few places. And I think I may have used it on that one 
on that one too. I don't remember, <laughs> to be honest. Wow. Yeah. I think there's like a crazy fast guitar section pretty early in Spin, Spin It On. Yeah, all that stuff. That was a strat through a mess of boogie. And I sat in the control room, like just right next to Paul, because we'd cut the track first and then, you know, I had to put the solos on top. And I loved that tune because it was like punk rockabilly. Yeah, very yeah. cool. Yeah. That's all it is. I mean, it's just, yeah. it's just those two chords, you know. Amazing. And then, um, of course, tell us the story about all the orchestra theme. And uh, it seems like there's a lot of hot shots on there with, along with you. Just a few, yeah. Paul had the idea of doing a, a rock orchestra. So we did a session at Abbey Road in October of 78. And the guitar section was Pete Townsend, Dave Gilmore, Denny Lane, Hank Marvin, and myself. And, you know, that was a huge thrill. I actually got to work with, with Pete and, and Dave Gilmore and, and Hank Marvin, who was like so everybody's you, idol. And it was like orchestral in the sense that you were all there? Yeah, we were all in the room at once. That's John magical. Bonham, Kenny Jones, uh, Steve Holly, who was the Wings drummer. Um, John Paul Jones played bass. Multiple drummers or just yeah, on three that, drummers on that no, song? It was, three, wow. it was three drummers, three bass players, five guitarists, multiple. Actually, Jimmy Page's amp was there, but he never showed up. And Clapton was invited to. Je Jeff Beck was invited, but he wanted approval over his guitar parts. So Paul said no, because <laughs> it was like a non-ego kind of thing. Everybody played their parts, you know. So yeah. you had this. Uh, Are you all playing that? Yeah. Because it sounds really fat. It does yeah, sound Yeah, it's like fat. It's like, you know, we demoed it, actually, before we ever uh, did the real session. Um, we demoed it with, with Denny Lane and myself playing guitar, and we, like, triple-tracked it to get that, you know, that same effect. But um, that was the first time I'd ever seen two 24-track machines running in sync because, you know, we had, I mean, there was three keyboard players, um, three bass players, three drummers, there was a Ray Cooper was playing percussion. Morris Pert was playing Timps, percussionist, studio percussionist. And then yeah. we had a horn section and um, a couple of other percussion players too. I mean, it was really like there was a lot going on. Wow. Um, Leave it to Paul McCartney to do that right, you know? Yeah. I mean, it was, it was definitely done right. We cut two tunes in a three-hour session. I mean, it was really efficient and everybody's egos were checked at the door. What was the other tune? So glad to see you here. Which awesome. was like the the last but one tune on on Back to the Egg. Well, a song like you know Rockestra Gram, that's instant Grammy. Well, that was the first <laughs> year they awarded a Grammy for rock instrumental. It's like too. Well, who's going to shake that one down? Well, yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> uh, that that um, that particular category doesn't exist anymore. Rock instrumental. There's no in, no rock instrumental category. Now just, it is contemporary instrumental. Well, I know the Zappa plays Zappa. I thought they won that recently. Yeah, but they just I think last year they they cut out that. Category. Just last year, I was yeah. tragic. Rock yeah, is it's dead. Like, yeah, it's like there's there's a few categories that are really restrictive. 
you know, I put my Christmas album in and like New Age doesn't accept holiday releases. And and because it's kind of a jazz trio thing, I put it in for jazz instrumental and they changed it to contemporary instrumental. But fingers crossed, I don't think it's going to make it onto the second round ballot. But You never know. That's one thing. You never know. Yeah. Well, we never knew when, when um, Pink Panther, when Pink Guitar got nominated. I mean, it was like that was enough of a surprise, but to actually win was, was crazy. But yeah. that's moving. That's back. Oh, that's yeah. moving forward into the 90s. I'm still, right now, I'm still <laughs> in 1978. Um, anyway, but yeah. So, you know, the whole Wings thing and getting on stage and playing with Paul and, and Denny and Linda and Steve was, it was great. You know, it was a great experience. And we were just really, I mean, it, that was a good rock band, you know, and some of the stuff yeah. off of Back to the Egg, like Old Samsa, there's a live version of that from Glasgow, which was the same concert that Coming Up came from. Um, that, well, you, do you play it on the Coming Up? Yeah. I'm, do you? Yeah. I totally bought that record. And I, you know, I'm obviously a little younger. Let's see, I don't know how old I was then when it came out. 10 or so uh-huh. and had to have it and I bought the record and it wasn't on there but there was a 45 yeah, exactly. included because yeah. I guess everybody wanted the live record they, so yeah, much because they had to shove the live 45 in there with it It was a bizarre scenario. Actually, it was the second time that something like that had happened. Why do you think people like the live version so much more than the studio version? Oh, I know exactly why. Um, Before that happened, when Goodnight Tonight was was a hit, which was... You know, that was the don't yeah. say it, don't say it. That one, um, that was a big hit, and Paul wouldn't put it on back to the egg. And Columbia Records were were pissed about it because they knew that they would sell a lot more albums if it was on on the release. But but Paul insisted that it it didn't belong on there. Stylistically, it it kind of didn't. But the record company would have been very happy. What happened was that Wings had kind of evolved into a rock band, but a lot of the material that Paul was starting to write was much more pop-oriented. So, you know, the album after Back to the Egg was McCartney 2, which was, you know, very techno. And and the version of Coming Up that's on there is, you know, kind of fast and synthy and and he's singing in kind of a semi-falsetto with that. And the radio stations, when they got the single, they flipped it over and the live version was on the B-side and they just started playing the live version which Paul wasn't too wow. happy about. But it was, and that was the thing, was that the Wings was rock, Paul was going pop, and right. with this kind of excursion into proto-EDM almost, you know, the kind of, in fact, a lot of the DJs love yeah. the McCartney 2 album because it really started that whole approach to electronic music making. Man, I got to get my vinyl out. I got all my vinyl, but I haven't had a turntable for oh, a million well, I years. I have a turntable <laughs> and I have the vinyl too, and I awesome. enjoy listening to vinyl. I also shave with a, you know, with a double-edged razor, double-sided razor blade too. Oh. So. Hardcore. I'm old. Yeah, I'm I'm old school. Do you have like a little that. razor blade slot in the mirror like they used to have? To no, drop I don't have one. <laughs> um, but 
the that was what happened was that because it was a, the the live version was a hit and it wasn't on the album, Columbia Records had to put a white label copy in yeah, with the album because people were expecting to to hear that track. And and not long after that, I mean, in that whole period, you know, Paul got busted in Japan. That was no fun. I was standing next to him at the time. Tell me a story. I had bought my Les Paul Gold Top in New York a few days earlier because I went to Tokyo via New York. Most of the band went via uh, from London straight to Tokyo. But I, I spent the weekend in New York, found this Les Paul on 48th Street and bought it and was taking it with me. I was hand carrying it. And I'd been on the plane from New York to uh, Tokyo with, with Paul and Linda and the kids. Going through customs, I was I had it with me. So when you know, the customs guy finds a, you know, a bag of grass in Paul's suitcase and all the alarms start going off and people start coming out. And, How did they find it? They have dogs or something? Or? No, he was just, it wasn't very well packed. Oh, and come so on, Paul. The, he was tapping, a, patting a, a jacket and look kind of look quizzical and then lifted it up and there was a bag of grass underneath it um why remains he was know, bringing it from japan to new he york? was bringing it from new york to japan oh so okay yeah. sorry I got um so going like you know, we all got ushered back and paul's being interrogated and and i'm there with my 57 gold top and two guys come in with a screwdriver and point to the guitar <laughs> and i i offered to to do the honors so i had to take off the truss rod cover and the back plates to show him there was nothing stashed in there you know i mean Man. the band had vacuumed their pockets you know it was like we knew that you had to be really cool about going into japan holy shit so yeah. that must have been a stressful moment it uh, was <laughs> more than stressful yeah it was right. uh, and i still have issues going through customs these days especially you know carrying a, carrying a guitar made of you know brazilian rosewood or something you know even Guatemalan rosewood. I mean, all rosewoods now are actually... Well, know, they don't have rosewood sniffing related. dogs, luckily, I don't think. No, they don't. Well, they could. I mean, some of the old rosewood smells great. <laughs> yeah. Probably low on their priorities, luckily. Yeah, I think so. Um, so, at that point, um, if Wings had not then kind of gone into a slow decline, we would have been touring America in the summer of 1980 with a, with a number one record. So, it was kind of unfortunate that it went down the way that it did. But by January of 81, I was already looking toward moving to New York. So I did. And you know, Wings still kept going, but it just was not, there was no touring on the horizon. Paul had started working on Tug of War, which wasn't going to be a Wings record. And we were still in the studio. We were still finishing up old material and, and just, you know, kind of still working together through January of 81. But I... I knew that it was time to move, so I moved to New York. And I'd only been there a few months when I met Hope, and she was from L.A., and I started going back and forth and then ended up in L.A., which was kind of where I really wanted to be anyway. Especially in the winter. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, I spent one winter in New York, and that was enough for me. We guitar players don't like cold fingers. Don't like cold fingers, don't like so much um, central heating that the guitars get all dried out. And, you know, you got to... Interesting. Yeah, I mean, it gets pretty dry here. I, you know, I have to put humidifiers in and stuff. I mean, where do you, which do you use, like Planet Waves or something? No, or? I, I just have the the dampets. I just, you know, well, actually the the Martin guitar version of the dampet is what I use. Are those uh, the little tubular things, or are they just yeah the the, the long skinny tube one? It's just a sponge in a tube yeah. is all it is. Um, <laughs> so I moved to New York, got involved in some projects, ended up in L.A. and went into studio work and, and started doing sessions because we got married, started raising kids, and I didn't want to travel. 
And so I was doing a lot of session work in the 80s and 90s especially. A lot, a lot of TV shows, Home Improvement, Roseanne, a lot of movies, a lot of record dates, and just kind of enjoying that. And, you know, so a lot of the gear is kind of session related too, you know. So, yeah. Some of it I brought from England, but, but some of it I just accumulated here. Like this matchless. And, you know, yeah, the matchless was, well, Andy Brower used to do my cartage for me and, I got a call one day that there was a matchless available, and I said, "I'll take it." <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't get the separate head because it's too heavy. Dude, I, it's too heavy I to take out on a gig. Is that a Chieftain or a DC? That's a DC thirty. I have the Chieftain, which of course doesn't have two channels, and I love that amp. And I got it when I was 27, uh -huh. and I'm in the same boat as you. The guy was telling me you should really just get the one by twelve version. It's like, no, man, I need the 212. Yeah. No, I can't carry that thing like 20 yeah, feet. It's, it's yeah, so it's, heavy. It's a, you know, I mean, it, I already, you know, when I was younger, you know, before I got into session work in London, I was carrying, a, you know, a Fender twin hernia around with me, you know, twin reverb I mean, yeah. with JBLs. <laughs> Fender yeah. twin hernia. Amp. Twin hernia. But, uh, and I have the scars to prove it. Um, but the, the one that I'll take out on gigs sometimes is the Pro Reverb. I mean, that's a great amp. Yeah. You know, it's in that kind of super Vibralux kind of area with the rectifier. And, you know, it's really, it's, it's cool. Is that like um, 65 or something? That's a 65. 66, I think. Yeah. Like, um, like I also have a, TH, I have a THD bivalve that sounds mm. really cool too. Wow. But, but my favorite, I think, is the Plexi. Because it's great. It's a great clean amp until it's not clean. You know? <laughs> You just yeah. turn it up a bit more and it's, you know, it starts you to... you ever get a chance to, I mean, those things are fire breathing, like take down walls when they're really, even a 50 watt, do you get a chance to push it up there? I've pushed it, yeah. I mean, it's my favorite sound in the world probably, but... Yeah, no, I've, I have pushed it, um, but I have one of those, um, whatever it's called, a power soak. Attenuator. Or attenuator, so I can, you know, can knock it down. But yeah. tucked away in the corner, there is a little yellow Oahu. Which is a Valco, you know, made by Valco, and that's that's a killer little like four or five watt amplifier. What era is that one? I have no idea. Roy but Blankenship fixed it up for yeah, me. Everything's here is like cherry. Yeah, cherry and there's a Mesa Bo the 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 flight case there has a Mesa Boogie Mark II. That was the one I had with wings. Um, so cool. But you know, and I you haven't been in the bathroom yet, but there's, <laughs> there's a ton of guitars in the bathroom what? too. <laughs> yeah. Um, That's an unlikely place to keep. And I have a closet in the the other room that also has a lot of. I have a lot of acoustics, you know, because with the signature model Martin, we've been through different incarnations of it, yeah. trying different woods, you know, Brazilian rosewood, Indian rosewood, um, Madagascar rosewood, uh, maple, mahogany, koa. Been a long process of kind of just figuring out the perfect combination. It's so cool that you've been able to experiment with all this. Yeah, it's, it's an amazing thing. What's the craziest thing that ever happened on stage or something like with you and Paul? It could be like comedy or spinal tap moment or on tour. Well, um, there were, I mean, the kind of the, the most iconic moment was, was when we were doing Rockestra live for the Campuchia, uh, concerts for people for Campuchia. And there were three concerts, the Queen headlined, the Who headlined and Wings headlined um, at the Hammersmith Odeon in London. And, for the finale of our night, we, our opening acts were, were Elvis Costello and Rockpile. So it was, you know, it was a cool show. I mean, yeah. Elvis Costello, Rockpile and Wings. But at the end of the evening, we did Rockestra. We did it live. And so there's Townsend and, you know, everybody, John Bonham and, and everybody's playing. And we did Lucille. We did the Rockestra theme and we did Let It Be. And 
on Wings had been doing Let It Be. We didn't do a lot of Beatles songs. We did Fool on the Hill, Open We've Got to Get You Into My Life. Uh, we did Let It Be yesterday. Um, comes to the solo, and I'd been playing the solo you know, on, on tour. I look around, and I realize nobody else is going to step forward. So I just stepped forward and started playing the solo in front of all like my heroes. You know, and it's, like, it's like one of those transcendent moments. And as I'm getting to the end, I, I, I get this whiff of brandy fumes, and, and, <laughs> I, and Pete Townsend's kind of leering over my shoulder. <laughs> um, getting in on the action. Yeah. Um, you know, trying to put me off, I think. But it was, yeah, it was kind of a, it was a very cool moment. And then, you know, Paul insisted that we all wear these kind of silver lame jackets, but Pete wouldn't wear it. And we had these kind of silver, like shiny silver top hats too. And uh, so at one point I put the top hat on Pete and he immediately threw it out into the audience. <laughs> he just wasn't having any of it. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. But um, that was, I mean, that was kind of the most kind of transcendent on stage moment not not just because i was playing with wings but to be playing right. with all these other amazing people too that's hardcore yeah. and um how did you end up playing with those other two beatles well paul asked me to go to france with him um in july of 1980 to work with ringo so we spent 10 days at super bear studios recording with ringo and just to sit in a studio with paul and ringo together you know it's half the beatles it's like unbelievable and of course, Ringo, you know, just is so, knows exactly where all the fills are supposed to be. And, you know, everything, it didn't take very long <laughs> to cut tracks. And it's amazing know, when you're working guys. for a producer who knows what they want. It makes things go faster and oh, yeah. easier if you're the guitarist. Although there's certainly magic to when it's a wide open palette and you got to create. Yeah. And, and I've been in circumstances where you have artists that will get frustrated and go storming out and then come back 10 minutes later with a whole new game plan and you know because you don't always know sometimes you think it's you that isn't getting it where it's really the artist isn't fully tuned in or you know the groove isn't right or but i mean i mean with the guys you know that that i've worked with over the years i mean if you're in a session with jim keltner or paul lime or one of these great drummers you know that it just it goes you know i mean i remember yeah. when we we cut the track for Mad About You, the Belinda Carlisle single, it was just me and Paul Lyme playing drums. And I was playing on a Strat and playing eighth notes. And there was nothing else. We just cut the track that way. And then everything else got overdubbed to that. So you, did you learn the track from a demo or beforehand? Or? Uh, we had the, one of the writers was there kind of, you know, giving, us, giving us the shape of it. So there might have been a guide vocal. But, right, but right. It was, you know, but just, you know, a lot of... Yeah, those those kind of that eight is eighth note thing. Yeah, well, tell me about the spy who loved me when you got to play the Bond theme. I guess that one's called Bond seventy seven. Yeah. Um, now that you know was, that's amazing to me because that's one of the greatest riffs of all time for guitar. Oh yeah, and uh, I remember when I first riff. saw a James Bond movie when I was like eight years old. I was like, I don't know what this is. Someone, an adult, dragged me there. All of a sudden, first action scene. And then you hear that guitar riff yeah. kick in. It's like <laughs> it's the like coolest action music ever. Al Schmidt told me a really interesting story. You know who Al is like yeah. a great engineer. He was in, in A&R at RCA Records in the early 
60s and one of his artists was Dwayne Eddy and he went with Dwayne Eddy to a screening of a low budget movie in Hollywood that they wanted Dwayne Eddy to play guitar on the score and he said no and it was Dr. No. <laughs> Ironic that he and said And then the other the story about that movie is that uh, Monty Alexander who wrote the theme scored it and they threw out the score and handed the theme to John Barry who had his band the John Barry Seven with Vic Flick was the guitarist. Did he play the original yeah, Flick? Yeah, on an arch top with one of those kind of movable pickups and they scored the, I think they scored the whole movie in like one three-hour session. Is that Dr. No? Dr. No, yeah. That's a, one of the all-time great movie guitar licks. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so um, I got called in to play on The Spy Who Loved Me, and we, we actually, I think we did two lots of sessions. There was the score, and then there was the album sessions, too, because some of the tracks on the album were, were a little different from what went into the movie. And we did a, a version of nobody does it better where it was just electric guitar marvin hamlet who was a composer playing piano and a string orchestra And that was kind of cool. And then right afterwards, they said, oh, play here. We're going to play you some, some tape. Just play some licks over this. And so I played the licks and forgot all about it. I only discovered a few years ago that it was actually, it was the write out of, of um, Nobody Does It Better. Because somebody pointed out that I was playing on it. And I said, really? I, I don't recall that. But apparently I did. Mm-hmm. Um, but then shortly after that, I got called in also to, to do the very opening of The Spy Who Loved Me. You just hear the, 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 the guitar lick on its own. Um, and that was something, it was just me at CTS Studios in Wembley, North London, with Marvin Hamlish and, and an engineer. And, and they, they would, in those days, they would project the film. So you had a huge screen and you could see the film. And I had to kind of play just play to the picture. I love that. You're talking about a artist coming. Like I did a, it was a low budget documentary where I was doing acoustic guitar. And, and of course, I didn't, you don't really get writer's credit, but they just say, okay, follow the movie and compose something on the right. spot that you think goes with this, you know, picture of zooming in. And, and it got kind of frustrating. And the director, she was like, you know, you're playing really purple and I kind of need you to play more green. <laughs> yeah. And it was like the only, only, the only times I yeah. almost said, I don't know what you want and left, but I stuck it out. And you know, she actually ended up getting nominated for an Academy Award for that. There it was amazing. Go. It was a documentary. Yeah, I think uh, Bowling for Columbine won, but it's, just, it's amazing sometimes you got to stick in there for some of those sessions. Yeah. And I've done a fair amount of scoring myself. So I know exactly what you're talking about in terms of being given odd color directions and you know the best thing i mean my best advice under those circumstances is visualize the color is actually play into that space because you know if somebody's using color as a as a reference they they probably know what they're talking about all right what what does a green chord sound like to you i don't know let me think for a second i would say you know probably something 
something along these lines would be Definitely. just looking at my green carpet and kind of you know <laughs> using my intuition you know it would really depend on what what shade of green you know what what the context would be for the right. picture <laughs> one time i remember walking out of a jingle session at a studio in burbank and i had an electric guitar and i had like no amplifier and just a couple of pedals and and somebody walked out of the studio next door and said oh good we need a guitar player and pulled me in and i had to basically i scored a movie in like a couple <laughs> of hours with nothing more than an electric guitar and a and a distortion pedal going direct Wow. They had to do some EQ tweaks, you know, because it was not like, it was not a big studio. And they would, they'd thrown out whatever it was that they had. And it was like, I really should have got some writing credit for it. But it was like, it was a session, you know. Yeah. It's yeah. But, but I've done, I mean, I, one time, um, actually, uh, here's a, an interesting story that do, I've done a lot of work with Michael Lloyd, who's a record producer, um, has a studio in Beverly Hills. And did a lot of records with him over the years. And I was working on a, a song for a low-budget movie. This would have been probably 1984. And the producer was a man named Michael James Jackson, who had worked with Kiss prior to that, and also produced a lot of Paul Williams tracks. And at one point, I, had, I was playing a Les, my Les Paul through a Marshall stack. And at one point, I, I, I just was noodling, and I did... I did that. And he said, play that again. And he put in a cassette because it was, you know, no MP3s in those days. It was cassettes. Yeah. So I played it and I played it a few times and, and he gave me the cassette and he said, go write a song with Steve Jones and Michael Debar. And they have a band called Checkered Past. I'm producing them. We need songs. So I got together with them. We wrote a song called World Gone Wild, which was based on that riff. And Steve Jones was... Steve came up with that, and then I'm... You know, it awesome. was one of those, kind of, you know, it was like a kind of a heavy, heavy yeah. tune. In fact, uh, when the album came out, Kerrang! magazine voted it album of the year, and it sold maybe like three copies or something. It didn't, <laughs> didn't get well promoted. And, and long forgotten, and then a few years later, uh, Hope, my wife, was, had a stack of newspapers that she was putting into the recycling bin and, and there was on top was an LA Times calendar section and a little article caught her eye and she said, wait a minute. And it was talking about Apollo Pictures making a movie called World Gone Wild. And so she caught up her brother, Lloyd, who's, you know, the, her, Hope's family are all in the TV business. And said, do we know anybody at Apollo Pictures? And as it turned out, they did because uh, Bob Rosen, who was the, uh, the head of Apollo Pictures, worked on Gilligan's Island with with um, Hope's dad, Sherwood, who created Gilligan's Island. And, and so she called him up. She tracked him down, and they were shooting in Arizona and said, I haven't spoken to you since I was seven, but <laughs> my husband is you know, a musician, and I see you doing a movie called World Gone Wild, and he has wrote a song called World Gone Wild, and maybe you might want to use it. He said, well, you know, thank you for doing this, but we already have a song done by Checkered Past. And she said, well, that's the song. <laughs> Turns out the guy that wrote the movie was a big Sex Pistols fan. And, and so they sent me the script and the first page of the script was the lyric of the song. Next thing I know, I get a call from the head of business affairs for the studio. Because <laughs> I controlled my own publishing on the song. So I could actually issue a license to them. And I got invited down to the, the 
editing room where they were editing the movie and they had a, a scene that had no temp score. You know, they do like temporary music. Right. Just because nobody likes to see their movie without any kind of soundtrack. And I had done a demo where I took those riffs and I did, I kind of orchestrated it. And I took a cassette with me and, and we put the cassette on, cued it up to the, and the movie was on a movieola. I mean, this was before digital editing. It was, you know, film on a, on one of those. Wait, so know. when did you make this demo? Do you know? This was, I mean, this was now in 1987. This was so. like after you'd connected with them, you're like, hey, they might need more. So you made an uh, additional Well, after or? I connected with them, it was like, oh, maybe there's an opportunity to score this picture. So I had a demo in my pocket. Wow. And we, we, we lined it up and I hit every cut. Oh, wow. It was like, so it was cool. perfect. And so they offered me the scoring gig. And, you know, it was the first time I got to score a picture. And it was, it was an interesting experience. Um, well, to quote Pulp movie, Fiction, you a smart motherfucker. Yeah, the movie was, <laughs> you know, but uh, it was Bruce Dern. You know, I got to yeah. score a Bruce Dern movie. How cool is that? I was a big fan of him. You know, I like science fiction things. And it's kind of like a post-apocalyptic movie. The postscript to this is a, a, a few years ago, I was teaching at Fur Peace Ranch with Yorma. Yeah, Yorma. And we were having lunch. And I said, oh, what'd you do last night? He said, oh, I watched my favorite movie. I said, what's that? He said, World Gone Wild. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, who knew? I've played on a few movie things. I mean, you know, I played on the score of Dirty Dancing, which was you know, right, right. one of the biggest selling albums of all time. There's no credit to the musicians on the album, but I'm what? on Time of My Life. Paul, me and Paul Jackson Jr. are on Time of My Life. And she's Like the Wind. I did all the guitar. Um, and there was a very cool Mary Clayton single called Yes that um, we, we worked on too. And then there's some stuff in the score that I played on. Um, I, one of the more interesting projects was for the movie Ishtar. Sure. Well, Paul Williams wrote an album's worth of songs because, you know, Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty play these bad songwriters and Paul Williams wrote bad songs, but funny bad songs. And the album never got released because the movie, even though it was quite funny, it just got such bad press that it bombed. But there's kind of this You're cult. saying I should watch it. You, should, you absolutely should, I watch, should watch it. I should watch it. It's, it's Ishtar. Good, and there's this kind of cult around... You know, it's a cult movie at this point, and people actually like love the songs. So it was kind of a weird thing. But but I put, I I got asked to recommend musicians for it. So you know, the rhythm section was Jim Keltner and Abel Boreal. I mean, it was, and Waddy Wachtel was the other guitarist. I mean, those were fun sessions. Wow. So you you played on all the songs, or most yeah, of the songs? Yeah, but, but most of them have never been released. They still haven't been released. Yeah. Oh, crazy. Yeah. No, I mean, there's a lot of stuff like that goes on. You know, I played on an album with Donovan that was only released in Japan. Right around that same time period, I, that was time, right around the time I was working with George Harrison, too. I played on the score of Shanghai Surprise. Um, but, you know, that's the thing is that I just kind of, I've always, as a session player, I was always, you know, a utility player that I could play a lot of different styles. That was what got me into Wings, was my versatility. Um, but my own self-expression was always picking up an acoustic guitar and you know composing and and arranging and and i started doing concerts and i got offered a record deal um from a friend of mine's label and got radio airplay on it and i just kept doing it and was now that solo you know, flight or what was that it? was solo flight yeah i was looking for that on it's probably on itunes it's on itunes but it actually it comes up as naked solos because it got combined with my second album which was naked guitar uh -huh. into one um one uh package and tell us about the pink panther theme yeah well when um 
James Jensen at Solid Air Records said he wanted to do a, an album of Henry Mancini tunes. I said, Pink Panther, please. <laughs> I just jumped in there. And then I sat down and I listened to the Mancini record and I had basically opened up a Sibelius, a new Sibelius file, and I did a takedown of the whole arrangement and then figured out how to make it work on guitar. The first thing is that the, it walks down from an E to a C, Realizing that the opening riff walked down from an E to a C, I figured, well, if I tune the bottom string down to a C, that would be a good start. But then, of course, it's in fifths, so I also had to tune the A string down to a G. And I figured, well, I could probably make it work, you know, um, but then I get there and it's like, well, wait a minute. And then, especially when it came to the, um, the B section, because to do the, the get the chord voicings right was not going to work in standard tuning. So I went down to D on top and A on the second string. So now I'm C, G, D, G, A, D. Which is kind of like Dadgad. It's just pronounced Sagugdigad. But with the bottom <laughs> two strings down a whole step. Right. Dadgad with the bottom two strings down a whole step, so. And, you know, I'm pretty familiar with this tuning because I have. I've written in this tuning before. So it's C, G, D, G. Usually I get there from Dadgad, so. I need to just settle the guitar down for a second. So, so this way, I discovered that. Hang on, let me roll up my sleeves. So I'll do this bit there. That I could get all the voicings. Like here. Just that chord alone is worth the price of admission. Totally worth the price of admission. And here, see, in standard tuning, I'd have to finger it like that. Right. To do. So it kind of gave me, it gave me the idea that I could make it all work. And I just kept moving, kept working through it and adapting the bass line in a couple of places where I just didn't make guitaristic sense. Um, and, you know, CGDGAD and Dagat are both great for close voice chords because you've got the two adjacent scale tones for one thing. Seconds are awesome. You get the second going. Yeah, the, second the seconds is great, are awesome. yeah. And then... How did that end up winning a Grammy? What category, and uh, were you shocked? Pop or? Instrumental. Um, the album won um, 
Best Pop Instrumental that year. Big shock. How does that work? Does everybody on the album get a Grammy? Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Well, congratulations, retroactively. Oh, thanks. I mean, that's mm-hmm. 10 years ago now. I think I'm... So, it was 25 years between Rockestra and Pink Panther, so I'm, I've got another 15 years cool. <laughs> for the next one. <laughs> now, um... When did you really dive into Dadgad? Was that a solo flight? or No, no, it was later. Um, after I did Naked Guitar, which was my second album, I was kind of, from a few different places, was getting suggestions that I should try doing some alter-tuning stuff because I was so familiar with standard tuning. And I thought, well, you know, I'll, I'll give it a try. I mean, I'd played around with Dadgad a little bit as a teenager, but I never really thought it through. And I remember I was sitting in a hotel room in Portland, Oregon. And I tuned to Dagad, and the first thing that I played was that. And I thought, well, maybe I can make a composition out of it. And then I started thinking, well, where are my intervals? You know, where are my tenths? And then I, once I started thinking of it in musical terms rather than in terms of muscle memory or shapes... Then it just evolved very quickly from there. So like the first tune, Bob's Your Uncle. the dad gad rookie that steps up to the plate and it's a home run the first time (laughs) then the second tune was past the buck and there i'm using using the fact that you have that second there little unisons and these close voice chords sounds like it must have been a pretty transformative moment for you in that uh, Oregon hotel room when you... Yeah, because it was like, all of a sudden, it was like, oh, I think I know how to make this work. I think and, so. Um, it just kind of evolved from there. and But it wasn't only Dadgad. Um, I mean, I was also playing around with open G minor, with G major. Um, you know, I was exploring lots of different alter tunings to begin with. And then... Eventually, it just kind of settled into being Dagad because of just the familiarity of it. You know, so it's my other standard tuning at this point. But more recently, I've been doing a lot more in standard tuning. I mean, on my next album, on the uh, LJ Can't Stop Playing the Beatles, of the first three tracks, first four tracks, three of them are in standard tuning. <laughs> 
ones in Dadgate. Whereas, yeah, cool. like, the last few albums have been almost exclusively in Dadgate. Cool. Well, except what? for the Christmas record, which has lots of standard tuning stuff on it, too. Because I get to jam with the rhythm section there. Now, I would love to hear one of these Christmas arrangements. I just love these. Uh, well, the I fact love that I'm in, I'm in Dagad here. <laughs> They're such great melodies, you know. Well, that's the, that's the whole deal. It's, it's like, give me a good melody and, you know, find it. I was listening to you. This is an interesting connection, but, you know, the, to me, Dee Snyder and Twisted Sister, either unconsciously or completely coincidentally or intentionally, took the beautiful melody from Come All Ye Faithful. Yeah. Sounds just like, we're not going to take it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like a pretty smart take one of the greatest melodies of all time, reinterpret it in a rock and roll setting. And that's yeah. <laughs> but I don't know if that's what, I'm not saying that's what they did, but. Well, it could be so easily subconscious. I mean, yeah. But, uh, but here, like, for example. Oh, that is so beautiful. First of all, you don't need no sleigh bells. Second of all, I'm just I'm genuinely moved just to sit here and, and watch that and it's that's the reason why humans love music and the reason why I've been doing music since I was eight years old. Bravo. Well thanks. <laughs> and that's in Dagat in G. Right, so you're kind of at the fifth position for your root. Yeah, so you know, you've got you know, there's your G. That's the one thing about about Dagat is that you, your pinky gets a bit of a workout. 
because you've got you, know, you can anchor on the G there um, or and here you know going down the scale beautiful cascade yeah which is very characteristic of Dagen I do think modern guitar players sometimes forget the power of open string totally well open, especially I mean in jazz strings. because you get stuck in flat keys right capos you know. rule too whereas you know you take I mean like All your fingers. <laughs> I love that chord. E flat, E flat Lydian. And then a first inversion, first inversion G9. Beautiful. Um, so, yeah, the open strings really do make a difference. But, you know, the, the, that's the, one of the issues with we're playing jazz when you're playing with horn players is because you're in F and B flat and E flat and you're in the, all the flat keys you don't get to use open strings but doesn't it seem like the they never way. make sacrifices for the guitar section no, and play an R key we are you know <laughs> that's why you have to kind of basically say okay if you know there's no reason why you have to be in those keys when you if you're doing a solo guitar arrangement I like all the things you are which you know typically you start on an F minor chord um <laughs> Wait, what, are you, what tuning are you in right I'm now? I'm in Dagen. So, so, like, for example... I'm with you too. Yeah, played jazz standards in in Dega. in standard keys, or I mean, not in in guitar keys are great. I went. I remember one time doing Green Dolphin Street. Uh huh. All you just using harmonics, you know? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about the. Yeah. I forget how I did, but with a Strat and a little bar, and you're yeah, playing yeah. a jazz standard Jeff suddenly. Beck, Jeff yeah. Style. yeah. Jeff Beck style, reinventing this, the reimagining a beautiful melody. Pi hat. Yeah, but in Dagad, kind of. Yeah. A lot of those tunes can work quite well in Dagad. Um, now, one thing I have been playing around with is like House of the Rising Sun.
spectacular <laughs> yeah it's just those 13th voicings it just works so nicely in it's funny because my brain right now is, is split between um, working on my Christmas repertoire for the band gigs next week um, and also getting some of the Beatles stuff under my fingers because I'm going to have to start promoting that at the same time. <laughs> yeah. But let me play you this because this, this is one that I'd been doing a lot of just playing a lot of 19th century guitar music and I started arranging this Beatles song and I thought just how much it really exists in a very classical kind of place when you um, when you squeeze it onto the guitar and your bird can sing Well, thank you. I can't even tell you. Uh, you're one of the most uh, truly versatile guitarists oh, that I've ever ever met, and I've met a lot. So, it's a pleasure hanging oh, out thanks. with you. Well, I appreciate it. I mean, for me, technique has always been secondary to making music. I don't consider myself to be that much of a technician. I mean, I I went through playing the Segovia scales and doing all the classical thing, but it just never. I'm not that disciplined. My discipline is really in taking a tune and just kind of getting inside of it and then turning it into something that's at least recordable, if not a concert piece. And, you know, as time goes on, just the joy of getting up in front of an audience and actually doing this stuff. And especially having this span of time where I've been able to develop the right instrument with the right strings and the right pickup and the right preamp and being able to just get up on stage and know that the sound that's coming out is what I want the audience to hear as opposed to, you know, in the early days of having to kind of fight those piezo pickup issues, you know. Well, real, real quickly, what is your uh, acoustic setup for live okay. performance? 
So I have a, a detail wavelength under the saddle with an Audix mic that's actually attached to the M-pin jack pointing this way. And usually they put mics inside the sound hole. Yeah. And the problem with that is it's too much low end. So I have the mic just pointing this way. So it's going through the jack and it's kind of pointing in yeah, the same it's, it's kind it's of parallel attached to the, to the end pin jack on a little rubber holder pointing this way. And it's an omnidirectional sort of. Audix mic. Um, I use Megami cable and it's a stereo cable going out because there are two signal sources. Well, it's not stereo, it's dual mono. And then I run through a, a Grace Designs Felix preamp, which nice. is the, the best of the lot. In Those my are out opinion. of Boulder or something, right? Yeah, they're out of, um, out of Colorado. And um, I have a, for reverb, I use um, the little mini Hall of Fame TC that I have like an EMT 140 plate, about 1.8 millisecond, 1.8 seconds. Is that going out stereo to the PA? No, that just goes out mono. I just send a mono signal. I mean, it's pointless having a stereo signal going to the PA when you've got audience that are, you know, not Only some of them perfectly positioned. It. Yeah. So, no, I just go mono. And I also use a little TC tuner there. I use the, if I need a clip on, I use the Peterson. And that's it. I mean, uh, awesome. and it's only fairly recently that I've even started using my own reverb. It was only when I got the Felix and it has an effects loop. So I put the reverb in the loop. And that, that does the job. If I need an amp, I have a, a ARQ61, whatever it's called, the, um, just a little cube amp, um, which is, when I'm playing with the trio, it's handy to have as a monitor. Right, right. Um, Yeah, they're yeah. like from Germany or something. The AER's from Germany, yeah. yeah. Very yeah. cool. Yeah, I played through those. Yeah, so that's, you know, and, and string gauging, by the way, is um, it's... Um, 13, 17, 24, 32, 42, 56. So it's medium, medium, light, 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 medium. Interesting. But I can still... I can still bend. Yeah. There. But I need yeah. the weight, especially if I'm tuning down. But it's kind of fun being in standard tuning because then it's, it's that much meatier. Thank <laughs> you. 